Tonight we finish our series, Long Story Short. Did you know that each of us have a long story short? What I mean is that each of us have a philosophy of life or a concept revolved around life's biggest questions. We all have to seek answers to the question, why do I exist? What's going on in our world? Is there something wrong with our world? What's the solution to that wrong? And how's it all going to end? That's called our worldview, or our long story short. And over the course of these last six weeks, we've sought to summarize and give a synopsis of the long story short of God. To give you kind of this overarching theme and understanding of his story and his plan of redemption. And so week one, we began with the idea of creation. That when God created, he had a plan and a purpose. He said it was good. He created, and then he evaluated. And the pinnacle of his creation was humanity, who was made in his image to reflect his goodness and his glory to be in unity with God and with each other. But in week two, we talked about the curse. How humanity was led astray, didn't trust in the goodness or the promises of God. That at that moment, the introduction of sin into the world, which has wreaked injustice, selfishness, pain, cruelty, to humanity. And because of sin, we are all broken. We see it all the time. I think of a few weeks ago, what happened in Sri Lanka. Synagogue shootings. It doesn't take us long to recognize something's not right with this world. But God doesn't leave us there. We talked about this idea of a covenant. It's maybe a word that's not that familiar to us. But it's a legal, law-abiding agreement that God makes with humanity. What he says, based on my character, I'm going to keep my promises. And he makes them conditional upon himself. And he selects a man out of this evil and turmoil going in the world. And he says, I'm making you a promise. I'm going to bless the entire world through you and your family line. And I promise to uphold that promise. And we see over the course of hundreds of years that this family turns into a large group of people. And he takes that nation and he makes a covenant with them. And he says, you are going to be my treasured possession as a nation. You're going to reflect my goodness and glory to the rest of the world. And we see that God is a covenant-keeping God. But the story of the Old Testament ends and people are running away from God straight into captivity. And in the New Testament, it opens with the son of Abraham, the perfect Israelite, who at once was hailed as a king, but a few short days later was mocked and led to the cross. 
Because on the cross, we see the climax of God's story. It's where Jesus, who is God with flesh on, seeks to interact with humanity in a personal way. And he lives a perfect life that no one else was capable to. And he dies an unjust death, willingly, on our behalf, to provide that reconciliation for humanity that we had all been longing for. Then Jesus comes back to life. He's raised again. It's what we celebrated on Easter. And he gathers this group of people, his disciples, that he had met with for years, and he gives them a commission. And he says, I want you to be my called out people that will reflect my desire and my character to the rest of the world. And he calls them the church. And so we're in the present age right now of the church. But that's not where the story ends. Tonight we're going to finish the final act. And what we see is that our final act will take us back to the beginning. Our final act will be in the book of Revelation. And what it will cover is all of the themes of the story to this point. Now, I don't know of your initial reaction when you hear the book of Revelation. Right? Maybe to some of you, it sounds like a sci-fi thriller. For some of you, you get excited. It's awesome. For others, maybe it's awful even to think about it, right? For me, it kind of elicits emotion like maybe is going on at the moment related to the movie Endgame. How many of you have been to the theater to see Endgame? Not a ton. So only a few awesome people to, <laughs> like, I, I have not seen it either, but Endgame is the epic ending of a 22-movie drama of the Marvel comics, right? So the Avengers are teaming together with different characters to overcome the damage caused by Thanos in the, the movie Infinity War, right? Now, if you know Endgame, maybe it's uh, something that you're not engaged with or heavily engaged with. I think the same thing the way we approach Revelation. Right? That God doesn't write Revelation for us to predict the when, but rather to prepare for the what. That first and foremost, the book of Revelation is good news and it's centered around the character of Jesus. The one who's the author of creation is the author of recreation. He is the main player and the main actor in this entire book. The book isn't written to strike fear or to kind of leave us weird or wacky, but rather to give us hope and assurance and clarity that God is coming back, that he will return to one day make things right. And so we see in this final act of recreation, hope and assurance that the stage doesn't end here. So if you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in Revelation starting in chapter 19. You can follow along on the screen as well. 
And what I'm convinced is that knowing the end of the story changes the way in which I interact in the story in the here and now. Look with me at Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you like to take notes and follow along, I'd like you to write this down. That the cross bearer will return as the conquering king. That the one who bore the cross is alive and active in the final stage. That Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas came as a newborn baby, but the second time he comes is as a conquering warrior. The first time he came unnoticed and in the quiet. The next time, every eye will see him. The first time he came with meekness riding on a donkey. The next time he comes is with power on a white horse. The first time he came as the Lamb of God. The second time as the Lion of Judah. The first time he was our suffering servant. He comes back as our conquering king. The one who was executed as a criminal is the one at the end who will execute justice. The day is coming when the whole world will see Jesus for who he truly is. Every knee will bow and recognize that Jesus is the ultimate authority. That he is king. His victory is unstoppable. He will come and return as king of kings. And for those that have aligned their life to Jesus, there is a happily ever after. Right now, the world seems upside down. Amen. We hear... Preach it! Yeah! <laughs> we hear news of wars... Riot, racism, hunger, political fighting, inequality. But we can have hope that one day Jesus will come back to make it right side up. One day people will stand either with Jesus or against him. In that day there's no neutral. And we see in this very next chapter a little bit of how this battle goes down. That how Jesus takes Satan and his enemies and he binds them. 
that he makes their power useless, that they are chained. And for a period of thousand years, which is known as the millennial kingdom, peace reigns. And eventually, Satan and the other ones, the Antichrist, the beast, they are thrown in and their eternal destiny is bound in the lake of fire. That I'd like you to write it this way. That Satan is bound and tormented forever. People's beliefs regarding Satan range from being silly to abstract, to being influential to insignificant. That Satan and his power, we sometimes struggle, struggle to package and understand. Is he powerful or is he puny? And one day we see that his power will be forever contained. Can you imagine a world without the influence of Satan? No more distortion, division, deception. Satan will be bound and he will be tormented forever. Jesus is our conquering king. We see that this is the king who was promised to David. Do you remember what we covered in week three of the covenant? That God made a promise to King David that his throne would reign forever. Second Samuel. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The Old Testament prophets didn't always clearly make the distinction between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. For them, it was much like a picture. Imagine you uh, are outside maybe in Colorado, and you look far on mountain ranges. And as you look far in the distance, it's hard to tell the first set of the mountain range separate from the second set. And so by way of interpretation, the Jewish people struggled with this concept of a suffering Messiah and a conquering Messiah. And so they held out hope that Jesus, when he came the first time, would bring about political revolution that he would be the king that is presently on the throne. But for them, they couldn't have the concept that he would be returning again one day to his rightful place. That Jesus is coming back to fulfill the covenant promise that he made for David. That he is born in the family line of David as we see in the introduction of the Gospels. And that he is the true king that was promised to David that he will one day come as a member of the family line of David and will reign eternal. A king from the line of David will reign eternal. This is the king that was promised to David. This is the king that was paranoid to Herod, made Herod paranoid. This is the king that was crowned and hailed as a king later to be crowned with thorns before he was killed. And now the king of kings is coming to reign. Can you imagine 
a pure and righteous king. That there is no election needed. That we can trust the one who's leading with his integrity and his purity and his care and concern for his creation. This idea of Jesus coming back in his rightful place as king of kings is only one of the covenant promises that we see fulfilled in the end. We see this truth that God will keep his promises, that he will keep his covenant. Remember in Genesis 12 that when evil has ransacked the world, that God has picked a man by the name of Abram and made a unique promise to him that he is going to have many descendants yet in his old age he doesn't even have a child and God promises that through him he will bless the nations that Abraham has a unique relationship with him in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world but we see in the New Testament that understanding of the blessing that he had promised to Abraham. And we see how that blessing is bestowed to each and every person that claim the name of Jesus. Look with me in Galatians. It says, So Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's quoting from Genesis 15.6. That there was nothing uniquely special about Abraham other than that he trusted and believed in what God said. That he took God at his word. It says, understand then that those who have faith are children of God. Scripture foresaw that God would justify to make right Gentiles, which just means foreigners, by faith. Faith is not merely intellectual assent and knowledge, but it's trust, it's confidence, it's assurance in who God is. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you know faith has always been God's payment for our debt? That in the Old Testament, they didn't receive salvation through good works or their obedience to the law. That they look forward to the day when these sacrifices that they engaged in would one day be fulfilled. They were looking for this ultimate and perfect sacrifice. They didn't have the concept or the name of Jesus. We look back in faith of what Jesus has done. They look forward to the day that God would make it right. God's plan for you and I has always been to be made right through faith. That is how he bestows his blessings upon the nations. That they can be in a forever relationship with him, not by what we do, but rather by what he's done. And trust and belief in that. So God, in the end, will fulfill his promises through Israel. We see in Revelation this understanding and picture that should honestly change the way that we think about race in the nations today. Because look at this in, Je in Revelation 5.9. It 
says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood purchased for God persons from every tribe and language, people and nation. Revelation 7, 9, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Each and every people group represented around the throne having claimed and confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But I find what is interesting is that Jesus doesn't just fulfill his promise through Israel, but he also does to Israel. Now, I want to let you know, this may go deep for a moment, then we'll kind of come back up for air, okay? Because Old Testament and Old Testament prophecy can sometimes be a little head-scratching, okay? So in the book of Daniel, we see this aspect that gives us insight to how the end times will be played out, in particular to what is known as the tribulation. So Daniel has this dream, and it involves a lot of years, and in particular numbers. If you like math, you may track with this quick multiplication. If you're not that interested, it may take you a while. So take some notes, and you can go back and research it. Please do that. Okay, so Daniel 9, okay, he has this dream and this vision about three events that will take place. And it is over the course of a period that is 70 sets of seven. Okay? So that's 70 times seven, 490 years, these three events are going to take place. And the purpose of these events, you see, are to finish the rebellion of the nation of Israel, to put an end to their sin, atone for their guilt, to bring everlasting righteousness to confirm the prophetic vision and to anoint the most holy place. So this dream revolves around the nation of Israel. And he goes on, he says, okay, over these 490 years, they're going to be broken up in compartments. And the first is seven sets of seven, that's 49 years, plus 62 sets of seven. That's another 434 years. So what Daniel says is going to happen in the future is first that while the Jewish people are in captivity, there is going to be a king by the name of Cyrus who will make a decree to give the exiled Jews privilege to go back and rebuild their temple. And that will take 49 years, which comes to fruition. Right? So he's making this decree before that until the completion of Ezra and Nehemiah. This next event that takes 434 years is talking about the anointed one. Right? Until the anointed one, Jesus, comes, we see that he will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing, and then a ruler will arise. So over those 434 years, which include a period of silence, which is the time in between the end of the Old Testament to the New Testament, which is 400 years, plus the life of Jesus up into his death. 
So 434 years take place. But we see his dream doesn't end there. There are seven years unaccounted for. And we see him describe these events. Like I said, he's looking at this mountain range. He doesn't have the concept of when these events take place in the future. And scholars believe those to be fulfilled in what we come to know as the tribulation. Look in verse 27. It says, The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of seven years. But after half the time, about three and a half years, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all of his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out with him. Seems like from what scripture says that the beginning of the tribulation will be marked by this world leader that we come to know as the Antichrist who will make a peace treaty with the nation of Israel that will be broken halfway through. And so this great Jewish revival of the Jews coming to know who Jesus is from every tribe will face at some point in the tribulation awful persecution because of their belief and knowledge in Jesus. So it's hard to make sense of the end without understanding God's unmistakable plan for the nation of Israel. That God will keep his covenant. That he promised them land and descendants and blessings. And those will be fulfilled in the end. We see that God keeps his promises. And the promises that we have to await, we find in chapter 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more mourning, death, crying, pain, for the old order of things has passed. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Creation will be made new. The goodness of the garden will one day be restored. First, God will make you and I spiritually and morally new. You want to know one of the most frustrating things about living life as a Christ follower? Is the fact that we still struggle with sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, anyone in Christ, he's a new creation, that the old has gone, the new has come. Yet if we're honest, when we look in ourself, we see this darkness, shame, guilt, and regret. Our thought life, 
our actions, that we struggle with sin. Romans 7 describes the torment and the tension that we feel of being a Christ follower. That we can never in this life get beyond our struggle with sin. But it doesn't end there. One day, we will be at peace with ourselves. One day, we'll no longer have that struggle. That we will be morally and spiritually new. That for the first time, we will see sin in the same manner that Jesus sees it. We won't want to engage in it. That we will be in complete freedom and joy and peace with God, ourselves, and others. That will be made morally and spiritually new. But it doesn't just stop there. It says that God will make our bodies new. When we die, we believe that our soul is separated from our body directly into the presence of the Lord. But one day, God will reunite our soul with a new body. That our future glory is not some disembodied spirit. That God will make everything new, including a new body. Like you, we think of the idea of Jesus when he resurrected. Some cool things, right? Could walk through doors, right? That uh, cool things were going on. To begin to understand the concept of this new body is rather hard. We know we are no longer subject to disease and death, but we can not begin to understand the significance of this new body. Right, right now, we have five senses. Imagine if we have 50 or 100 senses. Right? We like to think if we have uh, friendly felines at home, that they can be uh, poor animals because they can't see color. Right? But they can smell amazing. Imagine if we have that sense of smell. I had a friend uh, who had an unfortunate circumstance with his neighbor. They had a police raid. And he was very curious, so he kept trying to peek out the door and talk with the cops. And uh, he said, hey, can you just tell me a little bit of what's going on? I'm a little worried, right? Like, is it drug-related? And they're like, no, it's not drug-related. They said, it's computer-related. And he's like, okay, like, what are you searching for? And he's like, why are there dogs here? And he's like, you know what? They actually have dogs that are trained to sniff electronics. And he came to find out that this dog found a thumb drive stuffed in a bag of clothes in the corner of a closet. Right? Imagine the sense of smell that we may have in heaven. Right? That our bodies will be changed into this glorified body. That we will be made morally and spiritually new. That our bodies will be made new. But there's one aspect of creation that has been awaiting this newness for a long time. And we see that alluded to in Romans chapter 8. It says, For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated 
from bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That our world itself will no longer be subject to decay and destruction. God is going to do a home makeover over the entire world. A global rehab project. He's going to take our perfect bodies and put them in a suitable, perfect environment. One that is absent of anything pervilous, unpredictable, tumultuous. On the new earth and new heavens, there will be no hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, global warming, or pollution. God will make all things new. We see in chapter 22, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of its fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The curse will be reversed in the end. No more cancer, divorce, rejection. No more loneliness, depression. No more band-aids or tissue boxes. No more casts, crutches, wheelchairs, pacemakers, x-rays, MRIs, or CAT scans. No more radiation. No more chemotherapy. No more suicide bombers, no more school shootings, no more metal detectors, anxiety medications, cough, colds, flu, or acne, infidelity or infertility, dementia or dentures, inoperable tumors or autism, miscarriages, child abuse, no more rape, no more tornado sirens, hurricane warnings, yelling, fighting, bullying, road rage, racism, addiction, no more gossip or guilt. No more legalism or injustice. No more taxes or bills. No more politicians or elections. No more tears, pain, exhaustion, death, mourning, and grieving. Sin is removed. The curse is gone. The new heavens and new earth are described as a place of rest of joy, of laughter. It's called the home of righteousness. A few weeks ago, on March 14th, uh, my wife took a trip. She was heading to China with my oldest daughter, who was seven, and my mother-in-law to go and pick up our son. He, we brought home our, our fourth son. And as she went... Uh, of course, there's excitement, right? And she's on the Great Wall the first few days, and I can just sense uh, her excitement as I had the opportunity to FaceTime her, right? And as she travels all around the country and has the opportunity a few days in to meet our new son, Finn, she's beaming with excitement. But over the course of that 15-day trip, I began to see my wife's kind of emotion and excitement 
start to waver. Right? Because she became a little homesick. Right? So being in a foreign land, not unable to understand the language, uh, having my seven-year-old daughter being tired of the dinner options that she had, <laughs> traveling a lot, right? Not having a whole lot of room from hotel room to hotel room to engage or play with our kids. And so I remember those last few days of the trip that she was anxiously awaiting March 29th, right? This 15-hour flight on the way home, and once she landed, right, there was excitement on my part to meet her son, but I knew for my wife, it was a feeling of relief. I'm finally home, right? I think that is the feeling that's described of heaven. All of us know what it's like to have gone on a long trip and anxiously await being home. When the Bible describes, it says that we are aliens and strangers on this earth. That there's always something a little off. That we never feel at home because God has created us for something different. And he will fulfill that in the new heavens, in the new earth will finally be home. The home of righteousness that he's been preparing for you and I for thousands of years. But there's one final thing that I want us to focus on. In Revelation 22, there will no longer be any curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light or the lamp from the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The church and Old Testament saints will enjoy relationship with God and each other forever. You know the greatest thing about heaven is that we will have the opportunity to see Jesus face to face. That we are fully known and fully loved. That he sits on the throne. That there is no need for the sun because Jesus lights up the place. That in his power and his glory and significance we'll see what we hold by faith for the first time by sight. And the greatest thing about being in heaven will be in the perfect presence of our Lord and Savior who loves us so intimately and so deeply that he's been thinking of us from the beginning. There's no C in our themes for Christ. Right? In creation, in curse, in the covenant, in the cross, in the church, and in recreation. Why? Because Christ is a part of each one of those. That in the creation, Christ was the word of God. That Christ is the serpent crusher in the garden. That Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant. That Christ is the head of the church. That he is the lamb who was slain, who is standing victorious. 
the whole story front to back is about Jesus. That's the long story short. Where we spend that day will depend on what we do with Jesus Christ today. We can have hope and assurance, security because of what God has done with us. We can live our life today knowing that it's not the end of the story. Knowing that there is a happily ever after that you and I don't deserve. But it's a fulfillment of what God has been seeking to restore from the beginning. That one day God will take everything that is wrong and he will make it right. That our life is a midst that appears for a short while. But he invites you and I into his story and to be a part with him in reigning forever and ever. It changes the way that you and I live now. Knowing the end of the story, we can live with purpose and urgency and confidence now that what God has done, he will keep his word. What he has conquered and accomplished through Christ, he will one day come back as the conquering king. That he will make everything new and he will invite those that have said yes to Jesus to be a part of his family forever and ever.